I always like on Christmas morning to read the Christmas story. I'm going to read it this morning. I'm going to read it in a little different translation. and read it in a paraphrase from the Message Bible, which is a paraphrase, and it's just kind of a wider look at it in modern-day language. And so I'm going to read Luke 2, verse 1 through 20. About that time, Caesar Augustus ordered a census to be taken throughout the empire. This was the first census when Quirinus was governor of Syria. Everyone had to travel to his own ancestral hometown to be accounted for. So Joseph went from Galilean town of Nazareth up to Bethlehem in Judah, David's town, for the census. As a, as a descendant of David, he had to go there, and he went with Mary, his fiancée, who was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to his son, her firstborn. She wrapped him in a blanket and laid him in a manger because there was no room in the hostel. There were sheep herders camping in the neighborhood. They had set night watches over their sheep. And suddenly God's angel stood among them and God's glory blazed around them. They were terrified. And the angel said, don't be afraid. I'm here to announce a great and joyful event that is meant for everybody worldwide. A Savior has been born in David's town. A Savior who is Messiah and master. This is what you're looking, this is what you're to look for. A baby wrapped in a blanket and lying in a manger. At once the angel was joined by a huge angelic choir singing God's praises. Glory to God in the hot, heavenly heights. Peace to all men and women on earth who please him. And as the angel choir withdrew into heaven, the sheep herders talked it over. Let's get over to Bethlehem as fast as we can and see for ourselves what God has revealed us. They left running, found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Seeing was believing. They told everyone they met what the angels had said about this child. And all who heard the, shepherd, the sheep herders were impressed. Mary kept all these things to herself, holding them dear, deep within herself. And the sheep herders returned and let loose, glorifying and praising God for everything they'd heard and seen. It turned out exactly the way they'd been told. A great story. Christmas. Um, I was uh, doing some reading, deep study, I should say, and was studying the most popular gifts given over the years. 1975, the most popular gift toy, you could say. The Sony Betamax. Remember that? Let's think of before the VCR. Um, this was not quite as big a book as the VCR, but it was a little smaller. And it only price tagged for $2,300. A few years later, 1977 to be exact, Star Wars action figure, number one. And it might actually turn around again with the latest movie. A couple years later, you're going to remember this, the old mood ring. Remember that? Changed color and match up your mood. I mean, there's like well, well point 1.5 million sold. Well, actually, far, far more than that. I think it was 10.5 million. And then a couple of years later than this, this, this still astounds me, but the number one selling toy was a pet rock. Seriously. And it came with a carrier, and get a load of this, it came with a training manual. Desperate for toys that year. 1981, you'll remember the Rubik's Cube. Many of you tried it a couple times and threw it away. <laughs> 1983, the Cabbage Patch doll. Okay, I see a lot of heads. Okay, you're starting, we're starting to click here. 1985, the Transformers, the robots in disguise. They started back then. 1990, the Teenage 
Yeah, okay, you guys are with me. All right. 91, the Game Boy, the little, remember that little thing? That was big, number one seller. 1996, Buzz Lightyear, from, yeah, from Toy Story. 1997, Ange, Teletubbies, okay? Remember the Teletubbies? Yeah. 2001, this guy was a big hit in our home, Bob the Builder. You remember Bob? Yeah, he was fun. 2008, high school musical dance mad, okay? Yeah, some of you parents were all over that one, right? And then 2014, Frozen Snow Glow Elsa. You, you can start singing if you want. But what I, was, what I thought was really intriguing is the number one toy of all time, according to Time Magazine, and I, I was going through the Daisy, you know, Daisy BB gun and all that, I, I mean, all stuff. But when I read what it was, it made sense. It was the Radio Flyer Wagon. I mean, the old reliable, right? Radio Flyer Wagon. But, you know, really, as I read that list, it's, it seemed to be each year was the most popular, the brightest, the coolest, was usually the choice that people made. God don't seem to choose that way. And I, I posed a question at the um, children's Christmas program. I'd like to pose it again because it really gets me thinking a lot. If you were God and you saw the people you created, the planet you created, sinking into a cycle of despair and self-destruction, and if you've already planned your arrival, you decided as God you would have unlimited resources, if you were God, how would you plan your arrival? I mean, if you loved this creation so much to come down, how would you plan your arrival? Would it be like the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade? I mean, the most elaborate floats coming down and down, and the last one... The Messiah. That's not a bad idea. How about the Olympic opening or closing ceremonies? I mean, if you see those things, you want to talk about buku bucks, lights, dances, everything. I mean, the Messiah coming in, man, that would, maybe that would be the way to do it. Or how about some kind of shock and awe? I'm a whoosh, boom, I'm here. Um, I tend to think we, we like the popular, we like the cool, right? We like the the, the big production, and I tend to think that's how we would have done it. But God, as we know, did just the opposite. He did the opposite of what we most humanity would do, if not all of them. What he did was he took common, unwanted, left out, dirty environment and people, and he wrapped his arrival. Easy, or I should say every Christian's, since thinking people have wondered one thing about why he, his coming. Why? Why did he come that way? His arrival mocked forever the thought or the mindset of wanting more. Think about it. His arrival mocked the Hollywood heroes, the New York prestige, the highest quality brand, the highest priced car, the highest priced house, the shiny new things. Forever, his coming would mock those things because that's not how he came. Matter of fact, we're told that it, really for the pillow, he had a stone to lay his head. That was about all, all he had. And his arrival was so much different than we would have come. You see, the common and the simple, that's his plan. And it seems to continually be his plan. In the Christmas story in Luke 2, the Luke 2 account, 
I find it interesting how it's so common, the, the, the people, the places he chose. And I also find as amazing is the amount of protests around the country on setting a nativity up. I mean, you're protesting what? Something really common. Shepherds? I mean, think about it for a moment. This is a really common setting. And yet Jesus is still intimidating people some 2,000 years later. And the reason I think he intimidates is because he didn't come in all the shiny things that distracted people. He came in the common, where the one thing that would stood, stood out in the, the commonality of all the places and people was that baby. Because there was nothing perfect that night but the baby. And so he came to a common backdrop to common people. And I want to consider a couple things this morning that interacts with that question of why. Why did Jesus come the way he did? Well, first of all, why Mary? I mean, why choose her? The town of Nazareth, remarkably unremarkable. <laughs> it's like any plain village. Fewer than 2,000 called it home. It could be Dassel, for that matter. Under 2,000 people. I mean, I think we would all call Dassel common city, common town. Cocados like it, but it was over 2,000, so you disqualify. Okay? But it's just a common town, common village. And Mary's a typical young lady in this quiet village, presupposes a quiet life. And she's a teenage girl. And I'm sure she was in useful service to her home and the community, like other girls. And I wonder what would she have thought about the life that lay ahead of her with her fiancé, Joseph. Not a young lady in here who, who knows, or if you're married now, you know what she was thinking. I got to plan this celebration. I got to, and mom and dad, I'm sure, were in it, and she's bending their ear, and, hey, we got to do this, we got to do this, and it's going to be a great celebration, and all those type of things. You know what she was thinking. She's a normal girl. And what young girl would not be preoccupied with this own approaching wedding? She'd be thinking about the young carpenter, Joseph. The two sets of parents, by the, by the way, back then this was really different the way it was arranged. Two sets of parents had arranged a marriage that would unite two young people. This couple was pledged, another translation says they were betrothed, which was the most binding form of engagement. Legally, it meant that Mary was already Joseph's wife, though they could not be together until after their wedding. So a little different dynamic taking place here. And what lay ahead for Mary was a whirlwind of happy preparations. In Luke 1, chap, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, I want to read them because I want to grab something important out of here. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. I don't know how much angels know, but if an angel knew what kind of town Nazareth was, I wonder if the angel would have went, seriously? Nazareth? Okay, I'll go. And, and not only that, but I want you to go to Nazareth, but there's a young virgin teenager, I want you to go to her, and she's engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, this doesn't happen every day, by the way, an angel coming in and saying, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Okay, so you got an angel showing up, coming to Mary, saying, hey, I'll favored one. Now, I'll get your attention. And then the angel says, the Lord is with you. So in the midst of this happy time, along with her routines and plans, there's this single supernatural moment that shatters the normality of her life. 
And such a powerful message, I'm sure, didn't get processed quickly. Verse 34, And Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I am a virgin? Maybe blushes. Maybe she's kind of hitting her head down. I don't know how this is going to happen. I'm a virgin. What are you talking about? And so in Mary's mind, which would be in our minds, she's thinking the natural. She's not thinking the supernatural. And so this is a common girl. I'm sure the last thing in the world she thought was, God's not going to send an angel to me. Um, but think about it. The thoughts of marriage in Mary's mind now turn to the thoughts of motherhood. The thoughts of a quiet, ordinary life all of a sudden takes on a whole new perspective as far as the future. Now there's this talk of a miracle from heaven. She's just a common teenage girl. But she was a prime candidate for God to use her to do the spectacular. In verse 38 of chapter 1, it's clear she's no random selection. Though she's from an ordinary small town, she was obedient and she was courageous. And we learn that from her song in Luke chapter 1. We learn she's a woman of faith, a woman of the scriptures, a woman of depth. And God's every act is a point of wonder, especially to the common he calls to participate. But as a teenager, she knew scripture, she was a woman of depth, and she was just a common person. And God said, you're a prime candidate, because that's who I use. It's like when Jesus came, he set the whole tone for his ministry. Not only throughout his life, but throughout all this time here on earth. That he wouldn't be so consumed with all the stuff that we get consumed with. All the glitter and all the, the, the popularity and all the shininess. God seems to come among the common and he chose a teenage girl. Three things become apparent to Mary. One, she was given an assignment. Gabriel's first words is, you will. Here's an assignment. She was getting information on what to do with the assignment. And then she was told what the assignment meant. This child will be great. That's the implications of it. This child is going to be great, far greater than she recognized. And I, I, I kind of look back now, and it's almost like, Merry, Merry Christmas, Mary, you're pregnant with the Messiah. Think about that one for a while. And I'm sure she, as a matter of fact, we're told she treasured these things in her heart, has this idea of wondered, pondered, and probably still is in all of eternity, her role in the nativity. And I can't imagine how perplexing this all was. Mary submitted herself to the mystery that God's hows are never very rational, but his redemption is eternal. And maybe you and I need to quit trying to figure everything out and just let God take our common, ordinary life and make something miraculous out of it and do something miraculous out of it. He comes to touch our lives and he comes to give an assignment. So he chose a common, ordinary teenage girl. But then he picks Joseph. Now there's a lot of thoughts about Joseph because Joseph just kind of fades. He's one of the, the figures that intrigues me. And as I search history books, there's even no agreement on him. Some believe he was a really, really old man at this point, And I think that's a stretch. I don't, I don't agree with that. I think it's just an attempt to try to figure out where he went. <laughs> to say, well, he's old and then he died, of course, because he was old. But he just faded. And we know that he was, he, Joseph was alive at a certain age when Jesus was 10. But beyond that, we don't really know much about this guy. Without the accounts of the early life, we would probably know nothing, very little about Joseph. 
He's really the forgotten one of Christmas. I kind of look at Joseph, he's a lunch pail hero. Not born to holiness, but who by his hard work and steadfast faith finds his role in the coming of Jesus to earth. He was chosen to be an earthly father precisely because he was humble enough to fade into the background. To me, this is an amazing man to do this. As a carpenter, he was simple, a practical man. He enjoyed the satisfaction of building something, maintaining a good name in the community, all good things. He was a humble man. And I find it very interesting that Joseph was chosen to be the earthly father, so to speak, of Jesus, to begin his ministry. And he was a humble man who didn't mind fading. And when Jesus began his ministry, he chose another man who would learn and be willing to fade behind the scenes, John the Baptist. We'll talk about him next week. But I think it's interesting. People God chose were normal, common, ordinary people. In case of Joseph, who was humble enough to fade, knowing that this child, this child was the preeminent one. This child is the one people should focus on, so he got out of the way. And I'm sure he too looked forward to the celebration of marriage, the expectation of life with her. But then came the dream. We read about the dream in Matthew 1.20. Here's the dream. When he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Consider what? Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace Mary, desired to put her away secretly. They're engaged. They hadn't come together yet. The news comes to Joseph. Oh, I'm pregnant, Mary says. Joseph's like, uh-oh. And I'm sure his mind went. And he was a kind man. He wanted to protect Mary from disgrace. But then this dream comes, and it's explaining to him, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. In other words, don't stop the plan you had. You were on the right track. For that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. Okay, so here you got Joseph. The common, normal guy. News comes to him via Mary. I'm pregnant. According to this angel who came down, it, that it, it, this is like the Messiah in me. Not born a man, but the Holy Spirit. Angel comes to Joseph, expresses the same thing. How do you explain this one to the guys? I, I mean, what do, you, what do you say to them back at the workplace? How do you wrap your mind around parenting a king? And I thought about being a guy because guys are practical. Would the word of your fiancé in a dream be enough for you? Would that be enough to convince you of what about was about to take place? Most guys, if we were honest, we would lean more on our practicality than the divine activity. Right? And if we're honest, we, we, would, we, would, we would have this equation in our mind and go, that just doesn't add up. Something else is in play. But Joseph was humble enough, sensitive enough, clearly, to say God is up to something here far bigger than what I can imagine. And by faith, he followed the plan. He stuck with it. This man yearned, who yearned, I'm sure, for his own flesh and blood, which he would have later, found his calling as an adoptive parent. And his assignment's twofold. He's told to marry Mary. 
He's instructed to name the baby. By the way, that task was given to Joseph to make sure you name the baby Jesus. And he did it. Now, as you look at this common couple, there are four gifts given to them. Now, one, each of them tells us something important, that God is up to something bigger. So here are the first Christmas gifts. Joseph and Mary, here are the gifts. Now, about these four gifts, notice none of them were requested. Each, each one came as a surprise, and each brought unique challenges. What's the first gift, a holy embryo? Merry Christmas. A child would be born, but a son was sent, we're told. Jesus, the Son of God. Two, there's a pregnant fiancé, Joseph. <laughs> Merry Christmas. You have a pregnant fiancé. Three, there's a six-day trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Merry Christmas, Mary. Enjoy that ride. That'll jumpstart things. And number four, the last, probably another Christmas present they didn't consider very nice was a crowded stable. So you got Mary and Joseph, they're common people, they're given an extraordinary assignment, and they obeyed. And they obeyed because they had humble hearts to receive unexpected gifts, received unexpected circumstances. God chooses the common. But he's not done. We're told in Luke 2, he chooses some shepherds. Now this is one of those occupations everyone needed, but no one desired. Everyone, it's like, I need a cab, but I don't want to be a cab driver. Okay, it's that type of thing. And the life with sheep lent itself to tired feet, long work shifts, and unwanted aromas. <laughs> Certainly a lonely job. So lonely that it seems, said a little lamb to the shepherd boy, that they started to talk to lambs, according to the song, anyways. Is that lonely? But it was a lonely job. No wonder David, a shepherd boy, was able to spend time writing psalms because he had time. And God fashioned him into a king. He had time to think through life, and God left a lot of uh, the psalms for us. But a more common worker, harder to find, even low on a totem pole of jobs, is a shepherd. God chose them to be a part of his coming. Now, I read that... Uh, According to CareerCast, the worst job for 2016, I'm sure shepherding was the worst job back then, but the worst job for this last year, print newspaper reporter. Didn't see that one coming. But it was voted worst job to have. Now, as far as boundless.com, the lowest status jobs, which shepherds would qualify for as well, cashiers, seasonal farmhands, and toll booth operators. Lowest status, according to Boundless.com. If you put those two things together, put in parentheses, you got shepherds. That was them. Lowest paying, I'm sure, and nobody wanted to be a shepherd. But that's who God chose, ordinary shepherds. God chose them to experience the glory of God. They'd be the first human visitors to visit the Messiah. They also became evangelists. As they went forth and told the news, these shepherds were invited to greet this newborn king, and they were just common workers, common laborers. The honor was reserved for the lowliest of the low, the least educated of men, the ranch hands, the sweaty, the smelly men 
who on the night were favored by heaven to be a part of the most joyful moment in human history had yet contained. And these shepherds were part of it. God once again shows us. He invites the simple and the common, the least of these, and set the tone for his entire life and message. Now it's interesting, if we look at Luke 2, the great the emotions and the reactions in the text. Chapter 2, verse 9 through 10 tells us that these shepherds were terrified. There was awe, there was fear. Verse 15, we're told there's astonishment. In verse 20, there's joyful praise. It's kind of interesting to follow the emotion of these shepherds as they go through this account. It's like when God reveals, it hits them like light illuminating into darkness. And the centers or the truths that once were obscure now become at least maybe not understandable, but you can see them. And I shared a little bit about Christmas Eve, about my, my journey. You see, God longed to give common people deep insight. Because who gleans, if you think about it, the most from Bible study, who experiences the most joy? It's the humble. It's those who recognize who they are compared to God. It's those who recognize that they're simple and humble. It's those who bow before him who receive the greatest revelation. You see, after these things, I had to ask, are these guys still shepherds? Yeah, sure they were, but they weren't the same shepherds. They changed. They've been changed, transformed by being on the guest list to visit the Messiah and encounter his glory. And when it comes to nativity, everything was common. The couple, the town, the shepherds, they were just simple. And God chose Bethlehem, not Rome. He chose peasants for parents. He chose shepherds to grace the guest list of his arrival. Or one more question I have, though, why a stable? Why a manger? Why come there? It's a common place. It's a feeding trough for animals, for goodness sakes. And he's found in a stable, often in caves. Jesus was born in a stable, arranged for animals. Now I wonder how come our Christmas cards don't portray that. I mean, how come, have you ever received a Christmas card that had a haggard-looking couple, dust in the air, animal dung piles all over the front of the card? Not just unclean, but it offered nothing in a way of safety or solitude. How come we don't have those kind of cards? Maybe it makes us uncomfortable. Maybe we don't like to think in terms of the Messiah coming to that type of environment because it wouldn't be the environment we would choose. And so our choice is to clean it up a little bit. But don't do that because you miss something significant. My sister Deborah and I were down in Crystal Lake, Illinois for my uncle's funeral. We decided last minute to stay overnight. And so we're looking for a motel, and there were, we couldn't. There's no room in the inn. I mean, literally, we couldn't find a room. Finally, we found this place that actually had been there forever, it seems like. Um, and so we called it, and they had rooms. It was, you ever see the Bates Motel? It kind of looked like that, but we were game, and they had a room, and so we got a room there, and um, we should have known we were in trouble because my sister went to make a call, and the phone didn't work. I mean, it's like, man, it's, you know, you should have a phone by now. I mean, it's not, not that long ago. And so, but they had a, a telephone booth. Remember those? This isn't that long ago. That tells you something about this place. And so my sister Deborah is on the phone, and I'm standing out there, and all of a sudden this creepy guy comes on a bicycle, and he just circles us. 
I'm not kidding you. I'm like, oh, now i got to throw down in a parking lot in this place, too. This is going to be horrible. You know, and then, you know, I tried to give him the glare. Like, don't mess with me. You know, you kind of like that type of thing. And he rode off, thank goodness. Um, but why did we go to such a place? <laughs> it's the only place we could find. It's all was available for us. It wasn't safe. It wasn't clean. It's all we could find. And so unassuming was the birthplace that people aren't, sure, aren't entirely sure even where it is right now. They still can't find it. They're guessing, building monuments here, here, but nobody knows for sure where the birthplace was. Wouldn't you think, if God was to visit our earth, at least we could have the monument in the right spot. We're not sure where it is. So unassuming was the spot, because that wasn't the point. God chose a stable for his son to be born for a very important reason that we wouldn't miss it. When God sent his son to live on the earth, he intentionally chose not to shelter him from the harsh realities of this life. Why? So he'd understand the realities of your life. God chose not to shelter him. Jesus experienced life in its, I guess, blue-collar boldness, you could say. Jesus' first breath of air burned with the odor odor of animal urine. Jesus' first noises he heard were probably the grunt of livestock. Jesus' first outfit was made of dust clothes. And from day one, God the Father determined not to shelter his son from the rude, crude realities of earth. If you take a look at the stable, friends, the stable's a permanent symbol of the fact that God sent Jesus to live in a real world. And he had humble beginnings, more so than anyone in this room. So when you and I look at the stable, we learn that Jesus understands. He's been there, and he can identify with you. Maybe you haven't heard that Jesus can relate. He understands, and he comes to the common people. He comes to simple people who are humble enough to listen to the voice from heaven. The stable stands as a monument of his ability to identify and sympathize with whatever we're going through. But we must be humble enough to pour out our hearts to him. Only those who listen... Only those who seek him will experience his transforming presence. Hebrews tells us that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. He still does. God came to have a relationship with all who would humbly receive him. With Jesus, the ordinary becomes the extraordinary. With Jesus. And he comes to the common. It's the backdrop of our common lives, our everyday lives, that God can do his greatest work. You see, when ordinary people fall on their knees and cry out, oh God, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for who he is and what he did for me. Save me a sinner. When we do that, oh, that's when we meet the Savior. And God rewards and comes to those who will acknowledge who they are, a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. That's why he hates pride. It stands in every way about who he is and why he came and how he came. I'm going to close with a reading from Max Lucado. He he says it much more eloquently than I ever could. An ordinary night with ordinary sheep and ordinary shepherds. And were it not for a God who loves to hook an extra in front of the ordinary, the night would have gone unnoticed. The sheep and the shepherds would have been forgotten. But God dances amid the common. And that night he did a waltz. 
The black sky exploded with brightness. Trees that had been shadows jumped into clarity. Sheep that had been silent became a chorus of curiosity. In one minute, the shepherd was dead asleep. The next, he was rubbing his eyes and staring into the face of an alien. The night was ordinary no more. The announcement went first to shepherds. They didn't ask God if he was sure he knew what he was doing. Had the angels gone to the theologians, they would have first consulted their commentaries. Had he gone to the elite, they would have looked around to see if anyone was watching. Had he gone to the successful, they would have first looked to their calendars and palm pilots. So the angels went to shepherds. Men who didn't have a reputation to protect or an axe to grind or a ladder to climb. Men who didn't know enough to tell God that angels don't sing to sheep and that messiahs aren't found sleeping in food troughs. The angels came in the night because that is when lights are best seen. And that is when they're most needed. God comes into the common for the same reason. His most powerful tools are the simplest. And so might the exhortation this morning be, let's surrender to Christ's example and surrender to Christ's plan. For he still uses the common and the simple. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much about that night you came. The silent night we sing about, the holy night we sing about. The whole backdrop seems to be one of so common and so simple. But Lord, it seems that's when we've been able to see you clearest. When all that's cleared away, it's just you. Might we live our life that way, God? Keeping things ordered the way they should. Not putting careers or things or pursuits ahead of you or somehow thinking that we'll find favor with you if we succeed in all those things more. But help us to know, God, you come to ordinary, humble people who will surrender to you. I thank you for the message we celebrate. I thank you for the so many things it teaches us. And this morning, we're just reminded, and I hope encouraged, that you want to use us. That like Mary and Joseph, you have an assignment for us. And all you ask is we just present ourselves. And you'll put the extra in front of the ordinary. We praise in your name, Jesus. Amen.